if you don't know how to be in relationship with people in the, the messy world <laughs> and you don't feel like you have the time because you have so much to do in a given day, it's just hard. It's just not built into the workflow. So I think all this work on engagement is about trying to change that workflow. Probably the hardest job for journalists is mastering their workflow. It's easy to fall back on shortcuts, but sometimes shortcuts interfere with your ability to report the news effectively and responsibly. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Fiona Morgan is a journalist, researcher, organizer, and engagement specialist. Through her consulting business, Branch Head Consulting, she works with nonprofits, newsrooms, funders, and community-based organizations to build stronger local news and information ecosystems. Fiona also wrote a feature recently for our friends at the American Press Institute, Seven Ways to Get Your COVID-19 Reporting to Those Who Need It. Welcome to the podcast, Fiona. Hi, thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. I'm not physically here, but... No, well, spiritually... (laughs) It's nice to be on the podcast. Thank you. There there we go. Yes, that's the answer. I knew you would get to it eventually. Uh, So anyway, you know, I was looking at your bio. You've had a pretty interesting career. Can you sort of tell me about your journalist journey? Yeah, I've had a nonlinear career for sure. I started out my first job in the late 90s was at Salon.com. So that was a strange place to start. It was like I said, in the late 90s. So it was not that long after they started. It was an online news organization created by a bunch of newspaper journalists on strike. So I think I came up in this world of both kind of the, the old school newsroom, print newsroom in some ways, and then in the, hey, what happens if we try this in some other ways? So I'm grateful for that. For most of my career, I was an alt-weekly staff writer. Our alt-weekly, where I live still in Durham, North Carolina, is now called Indie Week. At the time, it was called the Independent Weekly. And that was also just an incredible opportunity because I was, you know, one of four staff writers on a good day, and we all wrote about everything, just whatever was needed. So I got a really good sense of what it meant to do local journalism, but I was also able to carve out a beat for myself around local media and technology really broadly. So whenever there was some kind of issue with media ownership or broadband access, a lot of things that were going on there were big issues nationally, I was always able to find a really rich local angle. And I have had, and I'm sure Indie Week continues to have, a really smart, engaged, curious audience that cared about those things as much as I did. So I felt really lucky. But I also started to realize that there was a lot I did not know and understand about policy, about media economics. So it's one of those things where the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. I decided to go to grad school in public policy, and I went to Duke so I could study with Jay Hamilton, who is now at Stanford. He runs their journalism program at Stanford now. But at the time, he was at the public policy school at Duke, and he'd written a book on media economics and the economics of journalism called All the News It's Fit to Sell that made a really big impression on me. So I studied there for two years and got a master of public policy, and I was able while I was there to work with Jay and start doing some research. And that was a big turn, I'd say, in my career, and that I really, really loved it. This was in about 2010 when the Knight Commission report on the, the information needs of communities in a democracy had recently come out. So this idea of information needs being the thing that we should be thinking about. So centering people and communities more than we were centering the industry or any particular type of policy. 
And I got really excited about that, as did many other people. So this rich vein of research and engagement came out of that, and I think still is in a lot of ways. So I started doing research on the local news ecosystem in North Carolina. And having been a media columnist for the Alt Weekly, I had this particular perspective on it and all these contacts. So I was able to blend a lot of the journalism work that I had done and the sort of news nerd tendencies that I had with this sort of new skill set. And I did that and worked with Jay as a researcher for several years. I got to work as a research assistant on his book, Democracy's Detectives, which was also about the economics of journalism, in this case, the economics of investigative reporting. And we worked on some research together, too, about the information needs of low-income communities and about the economics of information inequality, as I like to call it. So, and that was even more broad than journalism. So, so I had this sort of academic policy piece going in my career, and then I started working for an organization called Free Press, which is a national nonprofit advocacy organization in the public interest. I'd been following them for a long time and had contacts with them many times back to when I was a reporter. And then when I joined, they had just started doing News Voices, which was an engagement project that was rooted in community organizing practices. So the idea was to try to create a constituency for local news and to really start centering people in communities in an even more intense way than I had ever done before. So I got to learn a lot about community organizing and the principles and practices around that. It really pushed me in terms of, I was working for an advocacy organization, which I'd never done before. So even though the advocacy was for news and communications policies, it was still a totally different world in a lot of ways. And so now I'm a consultant and I'll just say too, the News Voices work, we started in New Jersey and we did these community kind of forums that were interactive. They were, we had a, an approach where we definitely did not have a bunch of people sitting at the front of the room that had all the ideas and everybody was supposed to listen patiently. We would design these highly interactive discussions where we would elevate the voices of people who had been maybe not well served or marginalized in the community. And it was really powerful. And I got hooked on facilitating conversations and designing truly inclusive, equitable discussions about news. It was, it was really great. So we were able to take that approach that started in New Jersey and launched it in North Carolina, again, where I live, while I was also doing some research on the ecosystem here, kind of building on what I'd done before. And that was so exciting. And it was great to be able to expand on what I knew and also build on relationships that I had started many years ago, watching my friends and former colleagues in some cases start their own nonprofit news organizations, watching all the ways in which the environment had changed and finding ways to bring people together in conversation and start daydreaming about what we would like to see. So the News Voices North Carolina project goes on. I'm not part of it on a day-to-day -day basis, but of course, you know, I'm <laughs> cheering them on and trying to be helpful when I can. And that has led to a lot of really exciting things the local news ecosystem work that I had done in North Carolina expanded to, I started doing research for Democracy Fund as they were 
planning to launch a local news lab fund in North Carolina, which they did. And I got to be part of that work. And that's been wonderful too, to see there's a, an interplay between research and building something real <laughs> and getting the money into the hands of people who are doing real important work. And so I sort of occupy this strange space in my consulting work where I do a combination of research and outreach and engagement and trying to help barn raise <laughs> with a bunch of other people and organizations uh, some, some new things and to strengthen some things that people who maybe could benefit from collaboration and from tools and from just being part of the conversation. So yeah, I feel really lucky that I continued to get to do all of these things. And so much of it involves listening and learning about the inspired hard work of brilliant people. Yeah, you said a couple of things. Well, you said many things that got me thinking in, in lots of different ways. And I want to go over a few of them. First of all, you're talking about these listening groups. Can you sort of describe them and, and how a newsroom could use them? Absolutely. We created a, a couple of guides, actually, uh, when I was at Free Press, and they continued to build a lot of tools like that. What we did was we used some tools that I had learned from a woman named Peggy Holman, who works with journalism that matters. She has been studying and doing various kinds of engagement and discussions for many years and brought a lot of this to us. So she brought a lot of this to the community of people that went to experience engagement and elevate engagement. So a couple of conferences that happened in Portland. And the technique that we used is something that's really quite common in a lot of nonprofit circles. It's called World Cafe, and you basically have tables of people that you might have, you mean, no more than eight. You really should have four to six people. And ideally, they're circular tables so that there's kind of not a hierarchy. I mean, it can get very, we had to be super flexible based on what, what we had available to us. But there are a lot of practitioners who've thought quite a bit about this. But so let's say you have a table of six people or so. And Ideally, there's a mix of people who know each other and those who don't, and you give folks some kind of grounding in what you're going to talk about, and you invite them to talk to each other, but you're not necessarily elevating any one person as being the expert. The idea is that journalists and community members are literally sitting at the table together side by side, and we would have conversations where we'd say, all right, well, we're going to talk about local news, and we'd have some scene setting We'd say, here are the things that we know, here are the things that we want to know, and we'd throw a question out there. And we would ask reporters to participate in these discussions as participants, but also as reporters. And this was something that I think was a little bit of a stretch for people sometimes because reporters are used to attending meetings and sitting back and taking notes and not being party to it. But I think it was a really great way for them to realize that you can be in a conversation as a journalist and play that role of asking questions and listening and maybe verifying things or trying to give the perspective about how news operates, about what it is that you do, about what you would want to know. And I think that that was really helpful for community members too because it demystified a lot of how news is made. So what do the journalists take away from the, these kind of conversations? 
a lot of very concrete story ideas. So I remember particularly one that we did, I think it was in Asbury Park, New Jersey. And the questions that we had, we have one round where people were sitting at, a t at one table and we'd have them discuss for maybe 20 minutes and, and report back to the big group. So to me, say, and another facilitator. And then we'd mix everybody up. The idea is that you keep moving to new tables. About half of the people stay, half of the people move. And then for the third round, the people who stayed move to a new table. So the idea is that you're sort of almost like pollinating the conversation around the room and you're listening for themes and something kind of interesting happens where sort of greater than the sum of its parts, like there's these connections between conversations and people will say, oh, well, I heard over here, somebody said something like that. So the questions that we would ask would be things like, what are issues that you think are important and how do you find out about them? And then the next question would be, what questions do you have about those issues? And that's important because it gets people out of their partisanship when you train them to think of things in terms of questions. So they are less likely to say, well, I think this. And they're more likely to, if they have to phrase it in terms of a question, maybe it's a question they think other people should be asking. Then it gets them to think more concretely about who you would ask, what specifically you want to know, how would you find out that information. We also explain to people that it's how how journalists do their work is by breaking it down into questions and then finding out the answer. The third prompt would be, what stories do you want to see told based on all these things that we've talked about? So in Asbury Park, we were able to go from something about not having enough jobs in a specific neighborhood, a historically black neighborhood of town, and then questions about how a particular policy worked with hiring for city project. And then by the end of it, they had come up with a very concrete kind of story idea, which was like a solutions oriented story around why can't the city use this policy or this program to hire people in the local community? And here are some people you should talk to. And here's some questions that we have about how it would work. So that was something that couldn't have happened if it was just reporters because they wouldn't have known necessarily a lot of these issues were going on. Some of the reporters that came to these things were maybe straight out of journalism school, and this was a way for them to really quickly meet dozens and dozens of people in the neighborhood and in the neighborhoods they were supposed to cover. And it also couldn't have happened with just a community alone because they might not have known how to break it down into askable and answerable questions. And so people putting their heads together came up with the story idea that was really coming from the heart of what people there wanted to know, and also was something that a reporter could walk out of the room with and report on. Yeah, we've done a number of podcasts about solutions journalism, about engagement, about different strategies newsrooms can take to reach audiences that they're underreporting. What is it about our, our industry that we, we need to explore these new ways of doing things? What's interesting, too, is that it isn't totally new. It just kind of comes in waves. So I've talked to a lot of people in Charlotte who were involved in the civic journalism movement, and they are saying, oh, yeah, we have these conversations. And then it kind of went away, and now here it is again. I do think that it happens because our industry has sort of grown up with this idea that if we just keep a distance from the public, that that's how we can stay objective. I think that there's also a lot of misunderstandings about what objectivity really means that get transmitted over time. And I think that as much as journalists are 
often really great at standing up to power. I think on a day-to-day level, sometimes we don't have the tools to really think about how much the work that we do maybe doesn't question power and how much power we have and if we're using it responsibly. So thinking about sourcing, say, if you're only ever talking to the same people and they're only people that you know, have titles, then you're really missing out. But if you don't know how to be in relationship with people in the the messy world (laughs) and you don't feel like you have the time because you have so much to do in a given day, it's just hard. It's just not built into the workflow. So I think all this work on engagement is about trying to change that workflow, trying to change the way that we do the work that we do. Yeah. And I'll say it, it's also laziness. I think Sometimes, and I don't necessarily mean laziness in a bad way. I mean, laziness in the sense of, you know, you should be pushing yourself a little bit more. You should be questioning a little bit more. And sometimes it's easier for us to talk to a handful of people. Yeah, I've talked to five people. That's enough people for for a source of a story. But maybe they're not the right people. Maybe they're the same people that you talk to about every story. And so the perception isn't really that great. So it's understandable why maybe the audience looks at your reporting and says, you know, this is kind of nothing new. It all seems to be from one angle. It doesn't seem to be really kind of exploring or giving me anything that's really kind of useful. Yeah, but I think that's structural too, right? So it's not just about individual people being lazy, which certainly can happen. But I think it's also that that's not how it's set up. There's not really a reward for being super thorough and reaching out to as many people as possible. I mean, I've been in a situation, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this have been in a situation where you have so many notes and so many quotes, and then what ends up in the story is so small. You know that it took all that work to get a great story, but it's hard to feel like it was worth it if you're under pressure to produce, you know, three stories a day or five stories a day that's a structural problem. That just goes beyond any individual person and goes to how the incentives are set up in the production of news and the way that it's funded and the way that the newsrooms are managed and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, not to give a pass to a lazy journalist, but (laughs) when I talk to people who are journalists now, they just feel so worn out. And I know so many people right now who are out there right now putting their health on the line. So I, I'm reluctant to put the blame on individuals when I I know how much of it is about trying to meet the demands of an increasingly sort of out of touch process. Yeah, I agree with that. And and I'm just putting the label laziness out there as just sort of an umbrella for more of a condition of what journalists sometimes find themselves in. For example, I covered a meeting just this morning and it was kind of, there was a big announcement and it was like, well, this is really kind of the news chunk. But there was all this other stuff that they talked about that people who were interested in this issue would be probably interested in learning about. But none of that ended up in the story because that was not the story I was going to tell that day. I have all this mm-hmm. other material. Maybe, I'll, maybe if I have time, I say that, maybe I have time, I'll go back and I'll write that second day story that provides that sort of nuance. But, you know, tomorrow I've got a whole n- another set of stories I've got to write. And maybe that's not going to be one of them. You know, the, the way we do our jobs it's crazy sometimes what the expectations are and you know it's tough to be judged on the other end of that of looking at what you're doing not realizing that maybe the journalist is actually putting a lot of work and care into a piece but for various reasons for various things 
it's not maybe the best story that could have been written or the most complete story that could be written, I guess. Let's stop beating up on journalists here for a second. Yeah, why are you so mean to journal? Why are we being so mean to journalists? Yeah, I know. Yet? I'm no. It's because I'm. It's <laughs> one of those self-loathing journalists. Uh, <laughs> so, anywho, one of the other things you you mentioned that I kind of wanted to to talk about was, you know, you have this consulting business. Who are the people that you're working with? What type of help are they looking for? I was very pleasantly surprised at how much work I had when I first went into this. A lot of my clients are funders. So I've worked a lot with Democracy Fund. I've worked with the Cleveland Foundation and the Knight Foundation. And there are a lot of other funders out there. I worked with Media Impact Funders for a while as a group. So funders obviously are the ones that have money to hire a consultant. So that's one thing. But increasingly, they are interested in journalism and they don't know exactly what is the appropriate thing for them to do, especially in local communities, place-based and community foundations are realizing that if they want to make any kind of impact on any of the issues that they, they invest in, whether it's health or education or, you know, career pathways or clean water, it doesn't matter if there's not good journalism, then it's going to be really hard to get the information that's necessary for that work to make change. And I don't just mean that they're looking for PR or marketing for their, their grants. That's not it because they don't need journalists for that. They can do that. But it's more that if you don't have reporting on what's happening with something like sea level rise, which really takes somebody who knows what they're talking about, you have to develop some expertise in that you're not gonna get that from spot coverage on the local TV because they just don't have that kind of expertise unless they were to partner with an organization that did that kind of news. So they're realizing that if they don't fund journalism in some way, if they don't find some way to improve it, that a lot of things that they want to achieve in terms of making a better community aren't gonna be possible. And so I've seen over the last several years, more and more local funders and national funders getting interested in what is the best way for them to do this. So Democracy Fund's local news lab has a lot of resources about that. And one of the first things that they want to do is sort of map what's out there to look at the ecosystem. And ecosystem sounds like this sort of highfalutin word, but what it really just means is that in any given place, it's not just one media outlet or a handful of media outlets. And in fact, it isn't just media outlets either. It's all the other things that are kind of the connective tissue of how people stay informed. So that could be libraries. It could be nonprofits that do a lot of information provision to their clients that they work with. It could be about how connected are people, what kind of broadband access is there, and what kind of leadership is there in community so that if you were to try to get the public involved, how would you pull them in? So this information ecosystem research, I did a big guide with Democracy Fund. The guide that I worked on with Democracy Fund is available at ecosystems.democracyfund.org. And it's basically just me handing over, here's how I do this. So that anybody can produce their own local news ecosystem map or research. So there's a lot of really concrete tips in there, including what to ask people when you do interviews, how to engage them, and also some free or low-cost data sources for finding out information about the media ecosystem. Identifying an ecosystem 
in a particular area or even just a, a particular strata of an audience that you kind of want to reach. I guess it, the idea is that you want to be able to identify the outlets that are going to target that particular audience and, and they're going to tell the story that you think needs to be told. It's much more broad than that, really. Uh -huh. So it's not so much about, before you even get to what story you think needs to be told, you kind of want to know what people have access to and what they don't. And you want to know if there's a lot of Spanish-speaking people in a community, where do they get news and information? Do they have any local sources? Is anyone producing local information for them about where they live? And you would look at Facebook groups or, you know, some groups use WhatsApp or some groups use Facebook or, you know, who are kind of the influential people if there's a, an elected official. has a really big following because she always broadcasts the meetings on, you know, Facebook Live or something like that. So who are the trusted people? And one of my favorite things about doing that is when there's been an opportunity to get a bunch of those people in the room together, which is something that I've been able to do in North Carolina and in Cleveland and Akron, Ohio. We got folks in the room and had them talk about it. So you had, again, you have the journalists, maybe the the editor-in-chief of a newspaper sitting at a table with someone who runs a literacy organization and somebody who has a community radio station. And you just get them to talk about what's out there and what's missing. And a lot of what ends up happening is that there are sort of these organic collaborations that start to happen. It's really not, in fact, about pushing a particular story. And it's more about figuring out how to make the resources and assets that are there stronger and more mutually supportive so that more people can be informed and, and people can be, can be better connected. So the other thing I wanted to talk about was engagement. If you are an engagement specialist, newsrooms, local newsrooms, uh, sometimes they struggle to identify who their audience is. And even probably more importantly, they struggle to identify the stories that audience is going to be interested in. And, that, you know, I guess the bridge in there is engagement and what can newsrooms do to local newsrooms do to sort of, you know, some of the steps they can take to improving engagement. There are so many resources out there now, which is wonderful. I would say the first stop would be gather.in or the, the gather network. So there's a lot of people who work in engagement who have really concrete tips and experiences to share. It's a very generous community. There are lots of guides. I would also say Membership Puzzle Project has some really terrific guides for people who are interested in thinking about membership, again, really, really broadly. So not just people who will pay some money and get a tote bag, but people who you can maybe ask to be your ambassadors in the community to spread the word, to get more people to join, or they might be able to help you find sources or find stories you don't know about. So I guess that's not really an answer to your question because there's so, many, there's so many answers depending on the situation. I would start with something doable. I used to really emphasize in-person engagement because I think it's very powerful. And because of the pandemic, that's not possible now. But I do think that having something like a Zoom call where you invite the public in to talk about these things or a Facebook Live where they can ask questions. The, the key to using things like that is that it's not enough to just put out the invitation. You have to really do outreach to get people there. You really, 
if you start to do engagement, you're going to realize how much you need the public and how much that they have to offer. And they have some of the things they have to offer are things you never dreamed of, you never thought of. They're not in your newsroom every day. So they're thinking in really different ways. There's also one of the coolest things that I've seen lately that I wanted to mention is Resolve Philly, which is a collaborative in Philadelphia that has a couple dozen newsrooms of all different kinds and sizes. They have put together a COVID-19 FAQ where you can get access to really simple questions around employment, around workers' rights, around childcare, health, and you can also use text messaging. Text messaging is a really great way to reach people because even if you don't have broadband at home, even if you don't have access to a computer, you probably have a phone that can use text messaging. So it's a good way to reach people at all levels of the economic spectrum. So I would say trying to find tools like that right now, just simple things that you can do, be consistent about it, really listen and really respond. So if somebody asks you a question, make sure that you answer the question. If you say, hey, do you have any questions? And then someone asks a question and you don't answer, you're not likely to get more questions. So it's really important to be consistent, to be responsive. And because it feels like a heavy load sometimes, just start small. Just start with something that you know you can do and do something to let people know that you're listening. So tell me a little bit more about Branchhead and uh, what type of work you do. My website is branchhead.org. It's B-R-A-N-C-H-H-E-A-D.org. My consultancy, I also work with field-serving organizations like American Press Institute, like the American Journalism Project, like the Center for Cooperative Media at Montclair State University. They're often running projects that involve some mix of research and engagement. And I've gotten to work through those. I've gotten to work with specific newsrooms and I always try to keep an ear to the ground so that I can hear about people that are actually doing reporting day to day. And my goal too is to start working more with community organizations and trying to help them understand news and information better, not as a communications consultant because that's not really something I have expertise in, but more in terms of how they can have a voice in how stories are told. Some of the most fun things I've gotten to do have been presentations I've given at the local library where I live. And I just talk about my work and I answer questions and I take ideas and we brainstorm together about local news in Durham, North Carolina, where I live. And it's fascinating. People have all these perspectives and, and a lot of people who don't work in journalism now have had it in their life in some way. And so they've thought about these too. I'm always impressed at the insights that people outside of our field have to offer, and we, we need to keep listening to that. So the name of my consultancy is Branchhead, and that is a reference to a sort of bygone term for the grassroots in the South, in the American South. And in particular, there's a link to North Carolina history. There was a governor who had a network of rural supporters, and he was a progressive Democrat. And his supporters were called the branch head boys. So I just really like that term branch head and what it means. The branch heads are kind of the beginnings of the streams that turn into 
the creeks and the rivers. So the idea is that it's it's the going upstream to reach all the sort of nooks and crannies of the community and not just relying on the mainstream, knowing that the mainstream is comprised of all these different perspectives and all these different people. Fiona, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been really great. It's been really great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.